This is They Create Worlds, episode 68, Sega vs. Nintendo, round one. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alec. Hello. Well, Alex, it's the summer. It's hot outside, and we don't get any fans this time because we're live streaming this and recording this. That's right. If you happen to tune in, probably around hour four of this podcast, which we're not to yet, obviously, but if you happen to tune in then, you probably saw a couple of really sweaty white guys just kind of sitting there. But yes, we are, for the first time ever, recording this live for the not-in-studio audience. We are here to do one of our in-depth looks at a topic in video game history, and this time we are doing one of the biggest and baddest, at least I think it's fair to say the one that's been written about the most, which of course is the epic battle pitting two Japanese consumer electronics companies against each other, particularly in the United States and in Europe. That, of course, being Nintendo and Sega Enterprises. This is not like how I thought it was back in the day, where it was Sega, which is the U.S., versus those Japanese people who was Nintendo. <laughs> Nope, all Japanese people here, though of course in both cases there were American subsidiaries with plenty of American marketing and sales staff that were leading the charge. Sega, of course, was started as an American company, as we've discussed in previous episodes, but by this period in its history, it is firmly Japanese, or at least it will be very soon, because we will be starting back in the dark days of 1982-1983, when Sega was still technically an American company since its parent was Golf and Western, better known as Paramount today. Okay, so it's Sega versus Nintendo. These are two Japanese companies, not like how I thought they were when I was a kid. That's right. So where do we start with this? We're obviously going to cover the whole rivalry of Sega versus Nintendo. And we had the lead up here with the formation of Nintendo taking over the console space. Right. We only peripherally sort of talked about Sega. So maybe we should start a little bit with how Sega came into dominance to sort of start up that whole rivalry versus Nintendo and start it from a here's Sega Here's how they came to something resembling power and then started challenging our lord and master Nintendo. (laughs) Sure, we can do something like that. Now, of course, some of what we talk about here will be repeat if you're a longtime listener. We have kind of talked about the formative years of Sega and then kind of moving into the 70s and early 80s with Sega as well. We've talked a little bit about some early Nintendo stuff. And of course, just last episode, we talked about kind of the beginning of this entire Japanese console industry. Some of what we're going to go over here is going to be repeat, but it's all about creating a narrative through line specifically focused on this battle between Sega and Nintendo for market share. In the early 1980s, Sega and Nintendo are doing similar kinds of things, but they're very different companies. Sega is first and foremost an arcade company. We've, of course, talked about their origins. We did our uh, Birth of Sega episode. 
They're a company that was founded by Americans, or rather multiple companies founded by Americans that all were squished together into one company. Then this company, Sega Enterprises Limited, that existed from 1965 when all of these crazy mergers and acquisitions and name changes all came to an end, was purchased a few years after that by Gulf and Western, the American conglomerate, and then spun out as an American company by being made a subsidiary of an existing company whose name was then changed to Sega, just to make things more confusing, because why not? At the very beginning of this period, this is going to change very quickly in our chronology, but at the very beginning of this period, what you have is Gulf and Western, the multinational conglomerate that is in everything from oil to book publishing to movies to video games. You have Gulf and Western subsidiary Sega Enterprises Incorporated. This is a publicly traded company in the United States that came into existence in 1974, renaming of a former cosmetics company that was already owned by Gulf and Western. Sega Enterprises Incorporated has multiple subsidiaries. The most important ones for our purposes are Sega Enterprises Limited, as opposed to Incorporated. This company was the original Sega that was very heavily involved in jukeboxes, then got into games, then got into arcade operation, and is this traditional Japanese coin-operated amusement company, Sega Enterprises Limited. In the United States, they also have a subsidiary. They had actually founded something called Sega of America all the way back in 1975. Now, this Sega of America is not the company that brought you the Master System, the Genesis, the Saturn, the Dreamcast later. That's actually a different company that has the same name. But there was a Sega of America, which was a primarily arcade-focused company at this period of time. Then they purchased an existing American factory, coin-op factory, called Gremlin Industries in 1978. You look in various books, websites, there are a lot of years out there that are thrown out for the purchase of Gremlin, but it is 1978. We have primary source documents, including Sega Annual Reports and New York Times articles that make it very clear when this happened. 1978, they purchased Gremlin Industries, which eventually in 1982 gets to be renamed Sega Electronics. It's their primary factory and R&D operation in the United States. And even though this is an arcade company, and almost exclusively that, they did a home computer for a brief period of time, but we won't go into that, Sega's Gremlin subsidiary is actually very important to the story here, because Gremlin was one of the very first arcade companies to do what is called system hardware. I think we've talked about system hardware before in previous episodes sometime. Do you know what I'm talking about when I speak of system hardware for arcade games? I do not recall offhand what the system hardware is. I can hazard a guess. Go right ahead. That's what we're here for. We're just here to guess and speculate. Facts? We don't need facts. Who needs facts? Yes. System hardware is something along the lines of a dedicated console is what I would think. Yeah, in a way. Basically, at the dawn of video games... Every single time you created a new video game, you would create a complete hardware from scratch. 
at the very beginning of time, that would be a TTL hardware system, transistor to transistor logic. You're using integrated circuits. There's no microprocessor. There's no code. There's no programming. So you would create a hardware specifically for a game. You would maybe reuse that hardware once or twice to use up some extra boards, just make a tweak to it or something, release another game. But then you were pretty much done with that piece of hardware. Then you created the next bespoke hardware. Even when the microprocessor came in, starting in 1975, you still mostly had the same thing going on. You still created all new hardware for all new games. Part of the reason for that is actually that the early microprocessors used, your 8-bit 8080s from Intel, your 6502s, your Z80s from Zilog, they weren't powerful enough, especially in the beginning, to drive a complete video game. So you were actually still using a lot of TTL hardware to do support functions on your video game back then. So you would create an all-new hardware every time. You'd use it for one big game, maybe one or two small follow-ups, and then you're done with it. In the mid-1970s or late 1970s, there were a couple of companies that decided that was dumb. Dave Nutting Associates that worked for Midway was one of them, but Gremlin was another one. And so they actually created a board based around the Z80 microprocessor that was internally by Sega known as the G80 board, G for Gremlin, 80 for the Z80 microprocessor, and decided that they would have this one board that then they would use for multiple, multiple games. All of their games would be used by this one hardware. Until that hardware becomes obsolete, then you create a new hardware. But instead of doing just one or two games with a hardware and then throwing it all out, now you're talking about doing, you know, six, seven games with a piece of hardware before throwing it out. And that's important to the Sega story because this is really what got Sega focused on having a hardware system that could support multiple games and would potentially be a good idea to bring into the home. All of the early Sega console hardware, and when I say early, I mean even up through the Genesis, all of these systems were largely based around existing arcade boards that Sega had made. I don't think if Sega gets into system hardware which Gremlin played a huge role in them doing that. I don't think if they get into system hardware that they necessarily get into creating these consoles because that's what got the company thinking in terms of a hardware system that we can create multiple games for. Now, obviously, when they put it into their consoles, it's scaled down. There's not as much RAM as the big thing. So it's not like a Sega Genesis is going to be able to do a one-to-one translation of a System 16 arcade game. It's not as powerful a system, but it's the core of that system. So that's kind of where Sega is at the beginning of the 1980s with this system hardware thing. On the other side, you have Nintendo. And of course, we already talked about kind of where Nintendo was at this point already in just our very last episode. Nintendo is not an arcade company, even though they certainly have released games in the arcade. Nintendo is fundamentally, I think at this point it's fair to say, a toy company. Of course, started as a playing card company. It expanded in the 60s. It tried all sorts of crazy things, most of which didn't work. But the one area where it's had a lot of success is toys. So Nintendo is a company that is naturally oriented towards the consumer market 
already. Unlike Sega, for which this is not a usual place to find themselves in. Nintendo releases some consoles in partnership with Mitsubishi in the late 1970s, but they get out of that market in 1980 and really focus on a new craze. And that new craze, of course, is Game & Watch. Game & Watch we've already covered thoroughly. We did that in our Gunpei Yokoi episode because he was so instrumental to that. And it's not part of the Nintendo-Sega rivalry, so there's no point in rehashing any of that here. But the important thing about Game & Watch is that this is a truly big phenomenon in Japan in terms of electronic games in the home. This is the item that really shows that there is a hunger amongst the Japanese populace for uh, consumer electronic entertainment. Nintendo's not the only one that does these kind of things. A lot of the other toy companies do. Bandai does stuff. Tomy does stuff. All the big guys. Game & Watch is far and away the most successful. And it never took off in the States. Yeah, not really. Not really. It did okay in Europe. Not great. Never really took off in the States. It was too late in the States. The United States had a handheld electronic boom, too. But their boom was kind of 1978, 1979, 1980. So by the time Game & Watch is coming to the States, which is about 1982, a couple of years after it started in Japan, it's just too late. Nobody's that interested anymore. But it's huge in Japan, and Sega takes note of this. Sega is a company in this time period that knows that it needs to change a little bit, that it needs to do something. You have the beginning of the slowing of the arcade market in the United States. The arcade market, and of course we talked about this in our Mega Crash episode, is becoming very hits-driven. It's becoming very hard to recoup costs because the consumer is becoming tired of games after two or three months. You have to replace them. At this time, replacing a game means buying a whole new cabinet because nobody wants to do kits. So arcades are just starting to get inundated with product that they can't afford. They're going more and more in debt to get the latest hits, and they need the latest hits or they're going to die, it's just created an untenable situation. And so in the middle of 1982, which of course we've talked about before, arcade sales, arcade cabinet sales just kind of stop. Nobody can buy anymore. They're all maxed out. David Rosen, who uh, we may recall from other episodes, is the chairman and CEO of Sega, still an American company at this point, remember. He saw this coming. We talked about in our arcades after the crash episode how he really tried to do kits, a converter game system, as early as 1981. The market wasn't ready for it. The market rejected it. George is asking you, do you think that the Versus system was created during the planning for the Famicom? Well, it must have been. Don't know much about the timeline of the creation of the Versus system, the VS system. For those that don't know, the VS system was a system hardware that Nintendo put together. I think we talked about it a little bit in our arcades after the crash episode or something. We talked about it once somewhere. They had a surplus of monitors because they were buying, buying, buying when Donkey Kong was doing well and then Donkey Kong fell off a cliff. So they had bought more monitors than they needed, and they needed a way to get rid of them. And so they came up with this idea of creating a two-monitor system, the VS for Versus system, and doing games on that. 
a lot of the early Famicom games started out as VS system games. And then the VS system essentially became a platform into which they would port Nintendo games, not just their own games, NES games, I mean, not just their own games, but also third party games that were popular. They would convert them for use with the VS system. And eventually they did what they called the Uni system as well. They also did the system without two monitors, but it started because of that need to get rid of it. In terms of being developed at the same time, I think they must have been a little bit. R&D 2 is the Nintendo division that created the Famicom. R&D 2 is also the division that was doing all of Nintendo's arcade hardware, at least in these early days. So it would stand to reason that VS work was being done at the same time. Nintendo did their first preliminary looks at doing a console in late 1981. They didn't have a prototype then. They hadn't chosen circuits. They hadn't done any of that yet. But they were starting to look at it in October 1981. So I think it's almost certain that VS system development overlapped with that. That would be my two cents there. But really, someone needs to bug Masayuki Uemura, the uh, head of R&D2 at Nintendo, and get him to spill the beans on the VS system. Or maybe Genyo Takeda, if R&D3 did anything with it. So that's a mission for you guys who are our Japanese listeners. Hunt him down and ask him. That's right. <laughs> so Rosen knew that the arcade industry was in for a bit of trouble in the United States. And then at about the same time, it became clear that the arcade industry was going to be in a bit of trouble in Japan as well. This is something we've talked about a little bit in previous episodes, including the last episode on dedicated consoles, but it's not something that gets a lot of press in the West, so it's something that bears going into again. Japan had a massive game center culture in the late 1970s and early 1980s that started really with Space Invaders. We talked about how Breakout was the first video game that really excited the public for video games and how it invaded bars, tea houses, snack bars, etc. The difference between Breakout and Space Invaders, not just an order of magnitude difference in sales. I mean, Space Invaders was far and away the most popular. It was also the game that really put video games into game centers. We talked about game centers in our Birth of the Japanese Game Center episode. The game center, as distinct from an arcade or a gun corner or whatever else in Japan, what made a game center distinct is that it was built around casino-style games, so-called metal-in, metal-out, or metal games. The first game centers were all created with this idea of a casino environment in mind. When Space Invaders came along, that's when you really saw these game centers. The game center culture as relates to video games, as opposed to these metal games, really starts with Space Invaders. And then game centers become these huge, massive operations going practically 24-7. I mean, you have the game center industry is, is centered in urban areas like Tokyo and Osaka especially. They're just kind of going all hours, all the time. They get really bad reputations, just as American arcades have often had really bad reputations. Nothing but delinquents and those horrible gangsters. Right, exactly. And so there's this really bad view of arcades and really bad views of their effect on the youth. 
their fears that the kids are sneaking off at all hours, literally all hours, to go smoke and play games and hang out with Yakuza and other bad folks like that. So there's becoming more and more of a call to regulate game centers in Japan, which at this point are really not subject to all that much regulation. So this is another thing that's coming down the pipe. It'll result in a law in 1984 that restricts the hours that game centers can operate. This is going to have a very bad effect on the Japanese arcade industry. It doesn't crash. You never have a crash in Japan like you had in the American arcade market. But it does mean that a company like Sega that is primarily concerned with the operation, distribution, and manufacture of arcade games, of video games, for a commercial setting, is going to have to supplement with other sources of income if they want to continue to aggressively grow as a corporation. That is the reason why Sega starts looking at this home market. They are impressed by the Game & Watch. There's a relatively new oral history interview with Hideki Sato that has been done by a Japanese university. So it's in Japanese. My knowledge from this interview comes through Google translating it, and we all know how well that works. It gives you nothing but the utmost truth in your language translation needs. That's right. This Google Translate ad has been brought to you by Alphabet. <laughs> no, uh, it, not really. It does uh, pictographic languages very, very poorly. Notoriously poorly. So I cannot extract the full revelation or full understanding of this interview, but Mr. Hideki Sato has been at the center, or was at the center, I should say. He's no longer at the company was at the center of Sega hardware development from its very first arcade games in 1973, arcade video games, all the way through the development of the Dreamcast. And he sat down for this massive oral history interview, the transcript of which has been made available. Some of the details that I'm pulling here are never-before-seen details in English. Sato might have given other interviews in Japan that I'm not aware of. In terms of English, this is stuff that hasn't been told in English. Uh, according to Sato, he and the, the hardware people at Sega were very impressed with the Game & Watch, just with the business. I mean, it's not so much the hardware, just impressed with the fact that it was doing so well. They had a relationship with Nintendo at this time because Sega, as a distributor and operator of arcade games, is taking arcade games from any company that makes them. Nintendo, and that includes Nintendo. And that includes Nintendo. In fact, it's kind of funny, and this is an interesting thing to bring up. We might have brought it up in our previous Sega episode. I can't remember, but it's worth bringing up here. When Sega first established Sega of America, we're talking about the original Sega of America, 1975. One of the goals of that organization was not just to bring Sega's games to the United States, but one of the goals was also to search for smaller arcade game manufacturers in Japan that they could do deals with to make and market their games in the United States as well. One of those companies was actually Nintendo. Nintendo had a light gun and uh, film-based shooting game called Wild Gunman. 
not the one that you have on your NES, though obviously it shares the name for a reason. And we brought this up before in one of the arcade episodes, so we actually have links in that episode right. of the sort of grainy picture of these cowboys standing out there ready to shoot you, and then you blast them first. That's right. Sega was actually the distributor of this game in the United States. Sega is the one that brought it to America in the mid-1970s. So they had a relationship with Nintendo, and it was a cordial relationship. Sato and other people in hardware design at Sega would have meetings with people at Nintendo, people like Ginyo Takeda, who was intimately involved in arcade game design. They were not just closed off from each other, so they knew from their contacts at Nintendo that Game & Watch was doing very well. And they knew that the arcade was going to be a bit of a problem. So there was definitely a push to do something in the home. They actually headhunt a Nintendo executive. This is a guy that's not very well known in the West, and I don't really have that much knowledge to add about him, unfortunately. But a gentleman named Takuzo Komai who had been with Nintendo for several years and who had been involved in the original deals that Nintendo made with outside developers to help them create their arcade games, their video games. Takuzo Komai is headhunted and comes to Sega sometime around 1981 or 1982, somewhere in that time frame, not exactly sure when. Komai, coming from Nintendo that has been involved in this consumer business, coming over to be managing director of Sega, He really strongly advocates that we've got to get involved in this consumer market as well. They know they want to get in the home, but they know that they shouldn't do the same thing that Nintendo's doing, which is also similar to what Bandai and Tomy and all these other companies are doing. They know they shouldn't do this LCD game format. So what can we do, says Sega, says Komai, says Sato, says all of this brain trust. What can we do? to go into the home in a way that doesn't directly compete with this Nintendo juggernaut with Game & Watch. Well, computers are big right now. Microcomputers. And we all know how great computers are. They reason that if they can make a computer available to the general public that is fairly cheap for use in the home, that this is something that might get people excited. So this is a way to get into consumer electronics harness their hardware expertise, but not directly compete with this whole game and watch thing. That's right. We're in a period of time when Nintendo and Sega don't really want to compete with each other. Well, this is back in the day when Sega and Nintendo loved each other. Maybe that's why the breakup's so bitter and vicious. (laughs) That's what they do. They decide to create a home computer. They partner with a speaker company called Foster that's really good at doing cheap circuit boards. They want to make this thing cheap. That's the whole point. They put together a computer called the SC3000, and this is the first real Sega home video game-ish product. It's not counting some of the stuff Gremlin did before they were purchased by Sega. Most people in the West, and this included myself until very recently, most people in the West assumed that Sega created their first video game console, the SG1000, which we'll get to in a moment, first, and then adapted that into a home computer variant, the SC3000. This was a logical thing to think when we didn't have any information, but now there's an interview on Shmuplations with Sato, and there's the 
oral history interview I talked about with Sato, we have the source now. And the SC-3000 was actually first. They did the computer first. And we talked a little bit about this in the past. This is right in the period of time when home computer mania is starting to reach a fever pitch. It makes sense that they went that route first, because this is exactly in that period where people thought that video games were about to be supplanted by home computers. Sega wanted to be first to the market with a really cheap user-friendly home computer, and that's the SC3000. That's that first product released in 1983. George is saying how it's interesting how Sega never went for cheap electronics. <laughs> right, right. Yes, I mean, there are plenty of examples in its later console history, as we'll see, where they really priced themselves out of the market, quite frankly. But this time, they really trying to do something affordable. Affordability was kind of the first watchword when creating this SC3000 system. So that's what Sega is doing here in this early 1980s period. On the other side, you have Nintendo. Nintendo, as we kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, had two R&D divisions. They had started with one, and then they had been split into two units. You had R&D 1, run by the famous Gunpei Yokoi, who, of course, we talked about at length in our Gunpei Yokoi episode. He is doing Game and Watch. At the same time, you have R&D 2, Masayuki Uemura. The primary thing that they are doing is they are doing all of these arcade games that the company is doing. But as we just alluded to, that arcade side of things is becoming a little problematic. The market is declining a bit, and outside of Donkey Kong, and to a slightly lesser extent Donkey Kong Jr. and Popeye, Nintendo has never had a big arcade hit. I mean, Donkey Kong was a big arcade hit, but they haven't had sustained success. Most of their games just have kind of vanished unnoticed into the ether. They had a couple of really big hits, but then none of those bread and butter kind of this is mildly successful in keeping us going kind of games that you need to have in between those really big hits. And that's why typically with Nintendo and arcade systems, you only really hear about Donkey Kong first and foremost, maybe Mario Brothers, and then one or two minor axillary other ones. Right. And then they had the versus system that did well as a system. That cabinet sold a lot of units, but most of the individual games were not necessarily standouts. So they're kind of running out of things to do. R&D 2 is not as busy as R&D 1. R&D 1 is the sexy division that is making all the money. And R&D 2 is kind of like, we're here two guys. Love us. Please don't fire us. I mean, Uemura was a little worried. Uemura was a little worried that as the arcade stuff really started to wind down a bit and the Game & Watch stuff was doing so good, he was a little afraid that the division might be shut down, which, you know, was probably not an unrealistic fear. Uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi, who we've talked about before, the stern, authoritarian, longtime president, chairman of Nintendo Company Limited, is the type of personality that is always looking for the next angle and looking for the next big thing. He modernized the playing card creation process in the 50s. He realized the company would have to get out of playing cards and expand into other areas in the 60s if it ever wanted to be a big deal. They moved from product to product to product until they found things that started working for them. He's always a guy looking for the next thing. In 1981, when Game & Watch is doing well in Japan, this is the height of the video game boom in the United States. 
This is when Atari is really, really big. It dominates everything. We have everyone, Johnny come lately, is trying to ride that coat trails, bandwagon, whatever. That's right. So Yamauchi is aware of this. He has contacts in the toy industry. He has contacts in the video game industry. So he's aware that this is happening. And he figures that this has got to be something that Nintendo gets in on as well, because the game and watch thing isn't going to last forever. They're going to need something else. So because R&D 1 is so busy doing game and watch and game and watch is still extremely popular, they're not talking about cutting off that line. He goes to R&D 2, he goes to Uemura to start exploring the feasibility of doing a console system. Very basic feasibility studies. This is October 1981, according to a big Nikkei Electronics multi-part article that was written about a decade after all of these events, like around 1994, I think. They did this big major article that has been translated by a professional translator into English, or at least most of it has. The important parts have. So we've got that. According to that article, they spoke to all of the major players in Nintendo R&D 2 for this article. Uh, October 1981, Yamauchi comes to Uemura and says, this is a big field. This is big in the U.S. Let's start looking at this. So that's what Uemura does. And they start at the natural, uh, the logical starting point, which is the arcade. Same thing Sega really does. You know, they've got Donkey Kong. Got Donkey Kong that's done well. They've got Donkey Kong that's a hit. The logical thing to do then is to take that hardware that's used in Donkey Kong. It's not a system hardware. They're not doing the system hardware kind of approach that Sega is at this point because they're not as deeply invested in the arcade. But let's take the Donkey Kong hardware, since that's our biggest hit, and figure out how we can reduce that into a consumer product. Obviously, arcade hardware is too expensive because otherwise they'd sell those games in the home and make lots more money if they could. Arcade hardware is always state-of-the-art, can't-do-this-in-the-home kind of stuff. Or at least can't do it in the home for a reasonable price. Unless it's many years later and then you buy a really old arcade cabinet. Yes. As they're in the process of doing this, they get into a relationship, they by which I mean Nintendo, gets into a relationship with Coleco. We've talked about Coleco. One of these days we'll do a Coleco-focused episode because they're worthy of it. They're a company that's worthy of a whole episode. Add it to the list. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we always dance around them. We've done Atari. We've done Mattel. We haven't done the other of the big three of that time period, Coleco. Coleco is a toy company that had some success in the video game business during the dedicated console days. We talked a little bit about that, Telstar. Then they went into the handheld and tabletop electronics area, LED, LCD, VFD, had some success there. And now they've decided that they are going to triumphantly return to the video game industry with an affordable console that provides near arcade quality graphics, something that is light years ahead of the Atari VCS and is also ahead of the Intellivision, though it's a little closer there, obviously. Eric Bromley, who's in charge of that project at Coleco, knows that the only way this is going to work is if they have some really hot licenses to go with it, some hot arcade licenses. Now, Atari has most of the biggest ones sewn up. You're not going to get Pac-Man on ColecoVision, at least not from Coleco. You're not going to get Defender. You're not going to get Space Invaders. That kind of stuff has been sewn up. The stuff that Midway and Williams and the other big American companies have done, even if it's stuff they've licensed from Japan, that stuff's pretty much already all gone to Atari that's been very aggressive about negotiating with these companies. 
there's definitely an opportunity to go to Japan and negotiate directly with some of the smaller companies that haven't necessarily tied up with one of these major American factories. And that's where the Nintendo comes into the picture. Exactly. They're not the only one. In fact, Sega is another big one. (laughs) They're also licensing Sega games. But Nintendo is one of the big ones. They end up in this relationship and they end up licensing Donkey Kong. The story of how that happens is itself a fascinating story. We'll save that for a Coleco-focused episode because it's not really relevant to console development. But the point is they have a great relationship with Nintendo because Donkey Kong is their flagship title. That's the title that is going to make the difference for ColecoVision. They're going to do that as their pack-in title. It is by far the biggest hit that they've been able to license, and that is going to be their main thrust. So there's a close and important relationship at this point between Coleco and Nintendo. Now, Nintendo's not developing the home version of Donkey Kong. You know, Coleco does all of that stuff, but they've provided the license for Donkey Kong for home consoles. At some point, Coleco wants their near completion on the hardware, but before it's been released. It's released in June 1982, so this is a little before that, maybe April, maybe May. Don't have an exact time period. But they're starting to look for international partners because they do want to go international with this after the first year. Through most of the world, uh, particularly Europe, that's uh, CBS Electronics. But they're not going with CBS for Japan. They need a Japanese partner as well if they want to get into that market. And, of course, it just so happens that they already have relations with several Japanese companies because they're doing this licensing. Nintendo is an obvious choice, not just because Nintendo is a video game company, but also because Nintendo is a toy company, just like Coleco is. So Nintendo is in with the toy distributors, with the people that would be pushing this game in Japan. It's the perfect company to partner with. So Leonard Greenberg, who is the chairman and co-CEO of Coleco, and Burt Reiner, who is the head of product development at Coleco, go to Japan to meet with Yamauchi. And we talked about this just very briefly at the end of the last episode. We now want to put this in context with all this other stuff going on right now. So we'll go over this again. They have a meeting or a series of meetings about having Nintendo be the ColecoVision distributor in Japan. This would be a good thing for Nintendo because they wouldn't have to make their own console then at this point. You know, they've started feasibility studies already by this point, but they haven't seriously begun creating a console yet. They could very easily switch gears and just license ColecoVision for distribution in Japan and not worry about doing their own hardware anymore. But Yamauchi also knows that he does have a team that could put together its own console if he really needed them to. So he's not in a position where he just has to accept whatever Coleco wants to give him. He has a bargaining position. He has something he can fall back to. He's not completely beholden to ColecoVision. Exactly. Or Coleco. Yeah, exactly. They negotiate, he drives a hard bargain, and they just cannot come to terms on the percentages. He wants a bigger cut of each unit sold than Coleco wants to give him, is what it comes down to. I'm going to take my ball and make my own console with nachos and poker. Yes. Keeping it family friendly. Keeping it family friendly. Yep. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yamauchi tells them, thank you, but I will make my own console. I said in the last episode, I have this directly from Burt Reiner. He and Leonard Greenberg to themselves were basically like, oh, yeah, sure. Nintendo's going to make a console. Right. Have fun with that. It hadn't really been done to this point. 
you know, look at our overview of the Japanese console industry that we talked about last time. What's on the market? It's the Intellivision from Mattel, but released through Bandai. And it's the Cassette Vision from Epoch, which is not a programmable system. It's still a hardware-based system. This is years, literally, you know, five years. This is five years after Atari released the video computer system. Well, in six years since Fairchild released their video entertainment system in America. Six years later, there is still not a homegrown Japanese programmable console. Which is kind of surprising. You'd think that would happen. You're so used today of Japan being the one to go, here's technology. It's new and improved. And America goes, woohoo. Right. They're a little behind at this point. So that reaction is perfectly logical. Nobody in Japan has done this yet. And so Nintendo, of all companies, a company that dabbles in arcades and does these cute little LCD games, they're going to create this complex piece of technology? Sure, you go right ahead and do that, Nintendo. But as part of this process, Nintendo's engineers, Uemura and his team, do get to see a prototype ColecoVision because, of course... As part of the negotiation, they are evaluating the ColecoVision to see if this is something they really want to be involved with. They are blown away by it. Uemura and his engineers are blown away by it because it has such great, smooth, scrolling video game action near arcade quality. So they are blown away by this. And the ColecoVision becomes the touchstone for what Uemura and his team want to accomplish with this Famicom thing. Well, with this GameCon thing, actually, because I'm getting ahead of myself. There is no Famicom yet. It's Project GameCon at this moment. It's not the name of the system. It's just the name of this project to perhaps create some kind of system. So now that the Coleco deal, the ColecoVision deal, is well and truly dead as a concept, they are really now starting to attack this idea of creating a home system in earnest. I mean, the the word on the street now or the word in the lab now is we got to do this thing. ColecoVision becomes their touchstone for what they want to do. Not necessarily duplicating the hardware, because as we'll see, it's completely different hardware, but just duplicating that ability to have these smooth scrolling arcade quality graphics. That's the goal. The logical thing to do would be to use a Z80 microprocessor as the heart of this programmable system. That's all fine and good, except that there's one problem. They can't find a maker of the Z80 chip that is willing to deal with them on the terms that they want. They have a real problem finding a chip manufacturer that is willing to take a chance on them and to give them the chip at the price that they want. Because may recall from the previous episode, if there's one thing that our good friend Yamauchi-san is very, very keen on. It's that he wants to deliver the best product on the market at the cheapest price. And this came up in the previous episode with the dedicated consoles and the pseudo-dedicated consoles, the LSI ones. Yes. I want this cheap, I want it better than everyone else, and I want it now. So the only company that they can find to really play ball with them is a company called Rico, R-I-C-O-H. It's a Japanese chip manufacturer. Rico's going through a tough spell. Rico's been hurt by the collapse of the calculator market and this and that, and Rico's not doing well. 
So Rico's got capacity that is not being put to use, which makes them receptive to working with Nintendo. But they don't have a Z80 license. They have a license for the 6502 microprocessor, a license that they got from Rockwell. Rockwell is not the creator of the 6502, but Rockwell has a license. Uh, It's interesting. There's a book on the history of Commodore computers by Brian Bagnall, which at this point, Commodore owns Moss Technology, the creator of the 6502 microprocessor, famous for being the heart of the Apple II, the Commodore 64. A cost-reduced version of it is the heart of the Atari VCS. And now, of course, there's going to be a version of it that is the heart of the Nintendo Entertainment System. In that Commodore book, the creators of the 6502 talk about how the 6502 design used by Nintendo that was put out by Rico was stolen, that they basically removed the couple of parts out of the chip that were patented, that made it patentable, and then created a functionally identical version of the chip that didn't run afoul of patent protection and whatnot. And they were kind of bitter about that. The Japanese sources, like this Nikkei Electronics article, indicate that Rico did have a license, that it was a legitimate chip, but they didn't get the license from Moss. They got it from Rockwell, a different chip company, which was probably a second source on the 6502. So whether it was a legitimate license or a flat-out copy, (laughs) whichever one it was, Rico, the one company that's willing to work with Nintendo on Nintendo's terms, only has the license for the 6502. That's the only chip they can fabricate, the only microprocessor, I should say. So they're a little put out by that, but they decide it's okay. They'll get over it, and in fact, they decide that it's actually a benefit. Because since the entire arcade industry, virtually the entire arcade industry in Japan, is focused around the Z80 microprocessor, It would take other companies that much longer to copy what Nintendo was doing because none of them would know how to use the chip. George looking up is whether or not they actually had a license, and he has an article that says Rockwell was a second source on the 6502. Perfect. So he has an article that says it, so that's that's legitimate. Yeah, so I think that's what's going on here. I think that the Moss people that Brian Bagnall interviewed All that they would have known is that Rico didn't get a license from them. And so in their minds, that probably meant it had to be copied. But it looks like what happened is that Rico instead went to a second source manufacturer of the 6502, in this case Rockwell, Mm -hmm. and then got the license in a more roundabout way. I think we can err on the side of saying that this was totally legitimate and not a knockoff. Thank you, Mr. Ethan Johnson, friend of the show. They have the the heart of their system now. It's a little bit harder to create the hardware than they had originally hoped now because they'd originally hoped to basically take their coin-op hardware and convert it directly into this console. They can't do that anymore because it's a different microprocessor, but they discover that the conversion is still relatively easy. So the 6502 forms the heart of the system, and then they create a custom graphics chip, their PPU, their picture processing unit. I'm not a technical person, but it basically just divides the screen into a series of tiled areas, and then you kind of use tile-based background graphics to create everything. That's why your scrolling backgrounds on most of your NES games are fairly repetitive. You know, you see a lot of the same textures, a lot of the same background objects just kind of repeated, and that's because it uses this tile-based system where you create the screen in chunks and you move the screen in chunks. 
the way you most efficiently get a nice smooth scroll is by having the same couple of chunks repeat themselves so that you're not constantly updating the hardware. And then sometimes it's not perfect. We're looking at you, Super Mario Brothers 3. Yeah, we talked about that in in a previous episode as well. The other big thing that they had to figure out, well, a couple of things. They had to figure out controls. You know, the Atari 2600 had a joystick. Joystick with a button they had to hold on to. We do like that thing. It's not good for Japanese folk because, in general, Asians are slighter than Westerners in size. That's not a stereotype. This isn't some kind of racial nonsense. I mean, it's actually true. They tend to be smaller. So anything that you have to really wrap your hand around, if it's made for a typical Westerner's hand, it's not going to go over as well with the Japanese. The Xbox controller, the original Xbox controller, is probably the most infamous example of this. That thing was massive. Yeah, I remember all the jokes about that thing back in the day. You had this giant controller. And it was big, and it's almost like, okay, if we share this controller, I can have the right side of the controller, and you can have the left <laughs> side of the controller, and we can still have a sandwich in between us. Yeah. It really went over poorly in Japan. I mean, really poorly. There's a reason that the 360 controller is much, much smaller and more but ergonomic. It's still pretty big. Right. But I mean, it's, it's a dinghy compared to an aircraft carrier when you compare it to the original Xbox controller. Ooh. Something like that was not going to work. The Atari joystick was not going to work as a control mechanism. The person that came up with the solution was a member of the development team named Takao Sawano. Takao Sawano had been in R&D 1 before he was transferred to help on the console project. At R&D 1, they were making Game & Watch. And we talked about this in the Yokoi episode, but I'll summarize it again here. The early Game & Watch games were all about moving a character left and right on the screen. So they had two buttons, a button to move left and a button to move right. Then they had to adapt Donkey Kong for Game & Watch, because Donkey Kong was a huge hit. They couldn't not do that as a Game & Watch product. So now you need up and down in addition to left and right. And on the Game & Watch, a joystick kind of thing is not really going to work for that. Yokoi, Gunpei Yokoi, came up with the famous D-pad. He came up with that famous cross-shaped control where you have an up button, a down button, a left button, and a right button all arranged in a cross-shape for Donkey Kong on the Game & Watch. Sawano had been on the team that did that Game & Watch game. So when he comes to the Famicom team, I still don't think it's called the Famicom, but we'll call it that to make it less confusing. When he comes to the Famicom team, he's like, we have this great solution on Game & Watch called the D-pad. I mean, I'm sure they were vaguely aware the D-pad existed. They're all part of the same company. But nobody on the R&D2 team thought the D-pad was a good idea, even though they must have been aware of it. It was only because Sawano championed it, kept saying, no, no, guys, really, this is the best way to do it, that they finally relented and put the D-pad on. Of course, when they tested it out, they found that it worked fabulously. And I honestly think that the original Nintendo D-pad is quite possibly the most perfect D-pad ever, with the Mm -hmm. possible exception of the Super Nintendo D-pad. If you see some of the more modern D-pads, they have that ability to do sort of in-between in the diagonals right and it just doesn't feel right it doesn't flow properly at least for me and my i'm used to my old ways get off my lawn you darn kids 
Nintendo controller, whatever. I really think that the NES and the Super NES, the D-pad, were just the height of perfection for that input device before we went all analog stick. Right. I agree. I mean, it, it feels pretty nice as far as D-pads go. A little Nintendo thumb there, here and there, notwithstanding. They've got the system specs. They've got the controls. They make it very toy-like in terms of the casing. The color scheme comes entirely from Yamauchi. Yamauchi basically at various times, a couple different times, just would point out a color. There's one time that he was in a car with Uemura, Yamauchi, the president. They were passing a billboard and he said, that color on the billboard, and it was a red color, that color, that is a great color. Hmm. And there was another time that he came into the lab and he had a scarf that he owned and he was like, this scarf, that is a good color. They experimented with a lot of color schemes, but the famous red and gray, red and beige, whatever it is, came from Yamauchi. He came up with the color scheme. Hmm. Hiroshi Yamauchi was not a video gamer. We talked about this. He was not a gamer. He didn't really do much of anything for fun besides Go. So, you know, he wasn't interested in that kind of thing, but he had an uncanny ability to tell what was going to sell. He didn't enjoy the stuff. He didn't play the stuff. Probably even fair to say he didn't understand the stuff, but he understood people and he understood what people find interesting. He kind of knew what would sell. And so he came up with a color scheme, not directly ordering them. But when Yamauchi hints at something and you work at Nintendo, you go that way. That's his nice way of telling you to do this. Exactly. So they've got this all together. And then his wife, Uemura's wife, actually comes up with the name Family Computer. You're making a computer for the family. So Family Computer, plus it can be abbreviated as Famicom, just like a personal computer is uh, abbreviated as MyCon, or MyCom, I mean, in uh, Japanese. They weren't exactly thrilled with the Famicom abbreviation. Some people weren't when they first heard it, but it kind of grew on people. They do the Famicom. They release that in July of 1983. At this point, the console market in Japan is very confused and not doing very well. Bandai had tried importing the Intellivision, and that just didn't work. Just did not work at all. It was too expensive because, you know, the import markup. After that failed, Intellivision just completely fails. In 1983, Bandai tried again with a cheaper system. They imported the Emerson Arcadia, which was a cheap Hong Kong console knockoff. It was released in the United States, too. It never did much. Tomy decides to go the same route that Sega did and release kind of a home computer video game system hybrid. But it only sells about 40,000 units, something like that. It's too expensive. It's got all these bells and whistles, and, and that just drove up the price too much. It sells a few tens of thousands, but it doesn't do well. SC3000 is the same way. It sells a few tens of thousands of units, not just in Japan, but in Europe and Australia as well. But it's not doing that great. The Famicom could have very well ended up being another one of these hybrids, one of these computer video game console hybrids. They explored keyboards and modems and all of this fancy tape drives, all of this fancy peripheral stuff. Yamauchi, though, kept them focused. It's like, no, this is meant to be a video game system. If we add all of this other stuff on, it just confuses the product and raises the price. So we're not going to do that. We are going to make this just a video game system. But we're keeping a microphone for ourselves. Yeah, Uemura added that in. As some people probably know, the Japanese version of the Famicom has a microphone on the uh, Player 2 controller, not present in the NES. 
Uemura just put that in on a lark. He basically just thought that anybody would find it fun to be able to, like, say something, say their name or say something else into a microphone and have it come out their TV speakers. It was put in almost as just kind of a fun little aside. Never used much. Kills Pole's voices. That's it. They took it out of the U.S. And, you know, that's understandable, really, under the circumstances. They cut out all of this peripheral stuff. They did keep an expansion port on the bottom of the system. You could plug into the motherboard, something else into the motherboard, because they figured that they should hedge their bets and at least give them the capability to add more if they want to in the future. But they cut anything and everything out of that initial release just to make sure that they hit a decent price point and didn't confuse the product. Sega, of course, gets wind that this thing is coming, that the Famicom's something that Nintendo's working on. I blame spies. (laughs) At some point, it must have been announced as a forthcoming product. I don't know how they got wind of it, but it wasn't necessarily through those kind of means. I don't know exactly when Komai joined Sega. For all I know, Takuzo Komai joined Sega after the Famicom project started, but I, I don't know. They quickly make an adjustment and decide that they will release a similar product. They will take their SC3000 computer. They're not going to get rid of that computer. But they are going to create a console version of it that will be able to compete head-to-head with Nintendo. That's where the SG-1000 comes from. It's an adaptation of this computer, the SC-3000. It takes a lot of convincing for them to be able to release this new console. Because we have to remember that at this point, the video game industry in the U.S., 1983, is in the middle of a wholesale collapse. And Sega is not a Japanese company. Sega is an American company. Sega Enterprises Incorporated, run by an American, David Rosen. The American management, the corporate management back in California and Los Angeles, are quite simply nonplussed at the idea of doing a console. Sega in the U.S. has gotten into the video game business, the home video game business by this point. Sega's R&D in the U.S., in California, has been making cartridges for the Atari VCS, known as the 2600 by this point. So they are in the process of taking a bath on cartridges in the United States. They think it's nuts to release a new platform, but this is kind of the beginning of the end of the relationship between the American Sega and the Japanese Sega anyway. They are able to convince it to go forward, but at this point, Gulf and Western is ready to completely wash their hands of the Sega operation. There are a couple of reasons for that. One is the crash, obviously. But the other reason that has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on with video games specifically is that Charles Bloodhorn, or Bloodhorn, I think it's pronounced, Charles Bloodhorn, the uh, chairman and CEO of Gulf and Western, the person that built it into this massive conglomerate, the father of Gulf and Western, really, dies in 1982. This is a period of time when conglomerizing is no longer seen as the way to build a company. We talked about this before. Nowadays, when a company expands, a company looks to expand in synergies. It looks to buy companies that are either in the same field or are in a related field that they can reasonably expand into from their current business. That's a far different philosophy from the conglomerate, which is what you saw in the 60s and 70s, which is just, we are going to buy up 
anything we can in any field we can, whether it makes sense for us or not. By the 80s, the era of conglomerizing was over, and Gulf and Western was ready to divest itself of most of its holdings and focus almost exclusively on its television and movie business. This is why Gulf and Western changes its name to Paramount. Now, Paramount was already a subsidiary. They owned Paramount Pictures and Paramount Television. It's just that it's after this divestiture that the parent company is renamed Paramount. So Sega's on the chopping block anyway, which is probably part of the reason that they finally decide not to make a big fuss about it. They buy out almost all of the outstanding shares. It was not quite a wholly owned subsidiary of Gulf and Western. They owned like 90% of it or so. They buy up most of the rest of the company. David Rosen leaves. He retires. He'll be back. In this brief moment, he retires. Gulf and Western begins looking for a buyer for Sega, but they don't lead this effort in the United States. The person that they actually have lead this effort is the recently promoted to president of Sega Enterprises in Japan, Mr. Hayao Nakayama. Nakayama is a very important name in the Sega story. He is the crucial name in the Sega story, quite frankly. Hayao Nakayama came from a family of doctors. It was very much expected that he would also become a doctor. Turns out, though, he hated the sight of blood and hated cutting things open and couldn't bring himself to do all of those doctory things doctors do. Stay up really, really late, get up really, really early, complicated surgeries on three hours of sleep. He defied his father and chose not to enter the medical profession. He bummed around for a little bit. He did some English translation because his English was very good and was kind of adrift for a bit. And then he stumbled on the world of coin-operated amusements, specifically jukeboxes. There's a company called V&V Vending in Japan at the time, named for the owners. I think their name was Valinsky, but I could be wrong. This was another one of these companies that was founded by foreigners, just like Taito was founded by a Russian. V&V was also founded by two Russian brothers. And just like uh, Michael Kogan uh, with Taito moved into jukebox importing and distribution, so did V&V. There were four major jukebox companies in the United States in this time period. We're talking like the 1960s. Seberg, AMI, Rockola, and Wurlitzer. Taito had the distribution for Seberg and AMI. Sega, good old Sega, had the distribution for Rockola. And V&V had the distribution for Wurlitzer. So these were the three big distributors in Japan competing in jukeboxes until karaoke destroyed the entire jukebox market in the early 1970s. Nakayama cut his teeth in the coin-op industry with jukeboxes at V&V as a salesman. When games started taking a more prevalent role in Japan, coin-operated games in the late 1960s, Nakayama wanted V&V to expand its business into games, just as Sega had done, just as Taito had done, just as Nakamura Manufacturing, Namco, was doing. The owners refused. That was not a market that they wanted to be in. So Nakayama basically just said, well, fine then. I'll create my own coin-operated amusement company with poker and highly respectable ladies. Nachos. And founded his own coin-op distributor called Esco Trading. 
ESCO Trading focused on importing certain coin-op product from the United States for distribution and doing distribution for smaller Japanese companies that didn't do their own distribution operation like the Namcos and Segas of the world did. And he was good at it. He had a real knack for selling coin-operated amusements, for selling arcade games. In 1979, Sega bought ESCO Trading basically so that they could have Nakayama's expertise in-house. Their sales manager had died somewhat suddenly a few years before that, unexpectedly. There had really been a vacuum in the sales department ever since that had happened. Nakayama was just so good at that, so good at his job, that Rosen bought his entire company just so that he could install Nakayama as an executive vice president at Sega Enterprises. I like how you do business. I'm going to buy a company, put you in charge of it, and go wild. That's right. So he was intimately involved in what Sega was doing in this time period. And then in 1983, he was actually elevated to the presidency of Sega Enterprises Limited. George wants to know what the former Sega sales manager's name was. Shunichi Shina. I get that from uh, the book that Ethan himself has partially translated. In the beginning, there was Pong, a Japanese history book. Shinuchi Shina, he had been the original sales manager of Sega Enterprises when they went into sales of their own games. He died in 1975. Esco was purchased in 1979. Obviously, I don't have a, a, a lot of source on this, but I don't think that's a coincidence. My belief on that is that Sheena was good at what he did and that his death probably, which was unexpected, they weren't ready to replace him at that point. I don't think they had another competent salesman lined up. And so I think that's probably a big part of the reason why they courted Nakayama is with uh, his death, his sudden death. They needed a new salesperson that that really knew their stuff. No one knew their stuff on selling arcade games better than uh, Hayao Nakayama. So Nakayama is now president of Sega Enterprises Limited in 1983. He's really pushing to do this home console system, and Golf and Western is really balking at this, but Golf and Western also wants to get out, so they're basically just kind of, I think, what it comes down to in the end is like, fine, do whatever you want, and by the way, find someone to buy you, because we don't want to be part of this anymore. I'm not saying that it happened exactly like that. I mean, I don't know exactly what happened. These things happen in close proximity to each other, Nakayama facing resistance on releasing a console and Golf and Western saying to sell the whole thing, that you figure that there's probably some relation there. But but that is speculation. Nakayama begins looking for a buyer for Sega in 1983. Rosen's helping out as well. Rosen's retired at this point, but he's still very interested in Sega, a company that he kind of sort of founded. It's more complicated than that, but we won't go there right now. And so he's kind of helping out as well. Nakayama tries a few different things. He tries Sony. He tries selling the company to Sony, which is interesting in hindsight. You know, this is the period of time when Sony is about to be part of the MSX standard. They're trying to get more involved in computery stuff, and Sega's got a console, so it kind of makes sense that they might try to look for some synergy there, but at this time, Sony's not interested. One company that was interested is a Japanese electronics company called Minibia. I'm probably mispronouncing that. They were actually so interested in the company that they approached Golf and Western to buy Sega. It was generally well known that Sega was for sale. Golf and Western, though, had given Nakayama the power to sell the company. So 
Minabia went the wrong way and Nakayama wasn't interested in dealing with them. So they managed to do some sleight of hand to stop Minabia from bidding for the company. The company that ends up buying Sega in 1984, early 1984, is a firm called Computer Services Corporation, CSK. We talked about this a little bit in one of our Sega episodes, I think. We'll go into it again here. The founder of CSK was an individual named Isao Okawa. He was a real rags-to-riches kind of story. He's very well-known in Japan, far more so than he is in the United States. His family was in the traditional clothing business, kimonos, I think, but certainly in the clothing business. During the war, or right after the war, I'm not sure which, Okawa, as a young man, gets very, very deathly ill. I think it's tuberculosis. It's some lung-related thing. Very deathly ill. And he probably would have died if not for uh, medical intervention from U.S. occupying forces, just because Japan is such a shambles here at the end of the war. He ends up surviving... But it throws off his entire life. I mean, he ends up going to college late. He goes to Waseda University, I believe, which is a very prestigious university, but he's behind. He's later than he's supposed to be because he'd been recovering from this illness for so long. That's a big deal in Japan. In Japan, there's this idea that the people that are the same age as you, your senpai, the people that are your age or that you entered a company with at the exact same time, That's your group. It's a communal culture. So that's the group of people that you're supposed to be with and help each other, that you are supposed to feel a particular affinity for, your senpai. So he's completely thrown off that course by having to recover from this illness for several years. At some point, he goes to America. I'm not sure of the details. And he gets exposed to computers and he decides this is what I am going to do. So he goes back to Japan and in 1968, he founds CSK. We talked a little bit before about how in the Japanese industry, there was a real demand for and desire for customized business solutions, even longer than there was in the United States. I mean, that's certainly something that happened at times in the United States, too, but even longer than in the U.S., even, you know, further forward in time, that was something the companies greatly desired. They didn't want just software off the shelf or hardware off the shelf. They wanted a company to design something just for them that no one else was using. And so there were companies that sprang up to meet this need. They would take existing hardware and marry it with custom software and create a custom computer solution for a company. That's what Okawa's business was. So he was primarily a software guy, not a hardware guy. They're creating custom computing solutions for business clients. That's kind of their big thing. So Okawa steps in and buys Sega, makes uh, Sega Enterprises Limited a subsidiary of CSK. Sega Electronics, the Gremlin stuff that we talked about before, that is sold off before that in 1983 to Bally. So Bally gets most of the American operations. They get the American factory and the old Gremlin R&D operation. Sega Enterprises Incorporated keeps its own R&D operation that's been doing 2600 games and has also dabbled a little bit in arcade games in Los Angeles, sells off the Japanese stuff to CSK, and then over the course of about a year or so, wraps up Sega Enterprises Incorporated. They transfer all of the assets into a new shell company called Ages, Sega spelled backwards. 
and then kind of dispose of assets that way. Ages remains on the books as a corporation, but then it's no longer active. Sega Enterprises Incorporated is no more at this point. So now we're back to Sega Enterprises Limited being an independent company. And now Sega is entirely a Japanese company. There is no American infrastructure for Sega whatsoever at this point, March 1984. Okawa is the chairman of the board. He doesn't interfere much with Sega at this period of time, but he's there. He's on top of the company. Nakayama is the CEO of Sega Enterprises Limited. He now has no one he has to answer to back in the States. He technically sort of answers to Okawa, but he basically has carte blanche to run the company as he sees fit. And like Yamauchi at Nintendo, he is a very autocratic person. This is actually quite unusual in Japanese companies. Japanese companies tend to be run by consensus management. You have a titular chairman, CEO, president, whatever, but you also have what are called managing directors, which are members of your board of directors that have executive authority as well. Generally speaking, in a Japanese corporation, all of your managing directors and you are going to get together, are going to discuss things, and are going to come to a decision that you can all feel good about. And then, through consensus, you are going to decide what to do. Neither Nintendo nor Sega in this time period are really run that way. Yamauchi is an absolute dictator. Nakayama is pretty much an absolute dictator. The difference between Yamauchi and Nakayama is that Yamauchi is steely, cold, calculating, ruthless. He's Shere Khan. Nakayama has a bit of a temper. He's known for yelling at employees, belittling employees. He's a volatile individual. He's Al Capone. (laughs) There you go. So they are very different in personality, but they are similar in the amount of power they have, except that Nakayama does ultimately have to answer to a chairman, Okawa, whereas Yamauchi is chairman and CEO. He has nobody he has to answer to. I mean, technically the shareholders, but whatever. March 1984, Sega is independent. By this time, Sega has launched the SG-1000. They end up launching it at the same time, the same day that Nintendo launches the Famicom. This is the beginning of the Sega-Nintendo real rivalry right here, because they're both in the console business. They're both very keen to succeed in the console business. Takuzo Komai, who I told you about before, the Nintendo executive that went to Sagan was managing director and was in charge of this home initiative. He said in a statement or at a press event or whatever, it's recorded in a Japanese trade publication, May 1983, when they announced that they were doing the SG-1000. This is what Mr. Komai said when they revealed their home division. We have staked everything on creating a home game division. That's an exact quote from Mr. Komai. Staked everything. So he is essentially saying that we are betting the entire company lock, stock, and barrel. Right. And I'm sure part of that is being overly dramatic. But the point is, this was not a side business. This 
was going to be their new way forward. Now, of course, they remain a vibrant arcade company, and and one could argue that that arcade aspect of the company remains the most important aspect of the company. But at this period of time, April, May 1983, they were not sure there would be a viable arcade industry two years from now. That's what's important to remember. It really looked like the government crackdown on game centers could be the end of the industry. It wasn't. The industry recovered. They retrenched. Companies like Sega and Taito started a scrap and build initiative where they basically closed many of their game centers and then really spruced up the ones they had left, made them more clean, well-lit, family-friendly. Sega, in particular, came up with the motion games, the Taikan games like OutRun and Hang On, where you had a controller that you're driving, you're moving around. They made the game centers exciting again. The industry survived. But at this period of time, it really looked like Sega may need to go all in on the home. So they were serious about this. It wasn't just a, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we could have something in the home, too? No, it was we have staked everything on creating a home game division. Also possible to understand that since arcade was really falling in the U.S. around the same time, the U.S. market is going belly up and they go and look oh, we're usually a little bit behind the U.S. and the console industry is crashing. The arcade industry is crashing. Yeah, we got to do something here. Exactly. So they launch on the same day, uh, July the 15th, I believe, 1983. The Famicom does a lot better, and there are a couple of things going on. It is a little cheaper, I do believe. I'd have to look up the prices again, but we're going to say that. It was a little cheaper. The main thing, though, I think, is that Nintendo was well embedded in the toy industry already, and Sega was not. There's an organization in Japan, no longer exists now, that was founded in 1982 called the Shoshinkai. The Shoshinkai was formed by a group of about 60, I think it was, toy distributors in Japan, to create a unified organization that could basically have a monopoly on distribution to Japanese toy stores and the like. The Japanese business climate is more amenable to that kind of thing. You couldn't really get away with that in the United States. There'd be lots of antitrust calls. Japan takes a more pragmatic view on that kind of association. So you can kind of have this occur. Because Nintendo was in the toy industry for a long time, already had relationships, Nintendo had a very good rapport with the Shoshinkai organization and could more readily convince the Shoshinkai to take their product. There's a possibility, it's very confusing, Some sources, and these are even sources written by Japanese people that have been translated into English, indicate that at some point the Shoshinkai actually became a Nintendo organization, that it was actually somehow Nintendo controlled it. And certainly they did an annual show that was informally called the Shoshinkai Show, which was a Nintendo-only show. It was kind of like E3, except only Nintendo was there, and it was only to display stuff to the press and to members of the Shoshinkai uh, organization. So there was a lot of closeness there. I don't think Nintendo ever actually controlled it. And it's definitely true that Sega 
and later on Neck with their uh, PC engine, known as TurboGrafx-16 in the U.S., also distributed their product to the Shoshinkai. So it was not a closed distribution system that only Nintendo had access to. I do believe Nintendo was always a little closer to the Shoshinkai than Sega was. So that gave them a certain distribution advantage. Most sources, at least in the West, don't really go into that. It's not just that Nintendo had some great games. It's not just that Nintendo had a good system for a low price. They also had an advantage in distribution in Japan. And I think that played a key role as well. They sell half a million units before the end of the year. Sega sells about 160,000 units, SG-1000. They probably sold most of those units, and Sato himself says this in his oral history. So Sega people agree with this. They probably sold most of those units only because Nintendo had themselves a little oopsie. A little oopsie. It turned out that in very certain rare situations, Famicom games would freeze. Just stop working. Uemura and his team at R&D2 did a lot of research with this and finally traced the problem to a single circuit in the system. This was a very rare bug. It wasn't a bug that necessarily would cause more than a moment's discomfort. I mean, yeah, your game soft locks and you have to reset. It doesn't crop up that often. But Yamauchi is very concerned that Nintendo always have a reputation for the highest quality at the best price. So only happening every so often is not good enough. Not only are we going to fix this going forward, which obviously you're going to do, no matter what, you're going to do that. We are recalling every single Famicom on the market to fix this problem in existing systems. So that's not just inventory that people have already purchased that they can send back to Nintendo and have their system fixed. That means every Famicom currently on store shelves is going to be taken off store shelves and there won't be any new Famicoms on store shelves until we have fixed this problem and can produce more units. Is this the first massive recall of any console? Yeah, I think so. I don't think there was ever a recall before that. Okay. Nintendo, cause of and solution to all of console recalls. Think about this in the context of a modern console. This little freeze problem wasn't anywhere near the level of catastrophe that the Red Ring of Death problem was in the Xbox 360. Yet not only did it take forever for Microsoft to do a warranty program for Red Ring of Death, They denied that it was a real systemic problem for months before they even started putting such a program in place. Whereas Nintendo, the moment they saw a teeny tiny minor little problem, they were like, call them all back. We're getting this right. That's a very different corporate outlook. George also mentioned that uh, they changed the buttons from square to circular. Yes, that is correct. I don't have the details in front of me if I even have the details on that change, but he is 100% correct that that is a thing that occurred. Alrighty. So there was a period of time where people that wanted a Famicom could not get a Famicom. Sato himself said in this oral history interview that was posted earlier this year that probably the only reason we sold 160,000 units is that people that couldn't get a Famicom because they'd all been recalled were still going to go home with a video game system one way or the other. I have money. I want a video game system. I am coming out and buying this video game system. I want a Nintendo. 
Oh, you added Nintendo. What's this other one? Uh, it's blocky. It's about the same. Okay, I'll take it. Good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, you know, there were a couple of other things on the market. In 1984, Epoch made their last attempt to stay in the business. We talked about the cassette vision in our previous episode, which was a cartridge-based system, but it was a chip-on-a-cartridge hardware solution. It was not a programmable. In 1984, they released the Super Cassette Vision, which was their Famicom-like system. This was them going to a full microprocessor system. So that was in there. You have the SG-1000 in there. Tomy and Takara still have their computer console hybrids. We didn't mention Takara before, but just like Tomy, they had one of those. Yeah, the MSX standard, which was very optimized for games. But basically, Nintendo creams them, creams every single one of them, just wipes them out. No competition, no contest. By the end of 1984, Nintendo is over 2 million in sales of systems. It's just going up, up, up. It gets a real boost by other companies getting involved. We talked about this. Nintendo did not have a third-party system put together from the beginning. They were just going to make all their own stuff. Same thing that Sega does. They just make all their own software. They do let Hudson put a couple of games out on the system because Hudson does a basic cartridge for them for programming. But they get a real boost because Namco, uh, Masaya Nakamura at Namco is very visionary and he understands that this console thing has got to be something that they're involved in. So Namco actually reverse engineers and puts a couple of their games out on the Famicom. After that, Nintendo gets them into a licensing agreement. Nintendo figures out that third parties is something they need to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's only after Namco puts out these initial products. They put out Xevious, their massive hit scrolling shooter on the NES in 1984, and that does a million and a half. Nintendo at the beginning just has Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr. and uh, like Popeye out on the system. Quickly followed by Mario Brothers and a a racing game, F1 racing and, and other stuff. And some sports games. But at the beginning, they just have the three. And other than Donkey Kong, they're not gigantic hits. So having Namco join so early and put a hit like Xevious, Xevious was huge in Japan. So getting a hit like Xevious on the console in 84, like right when they needed it, (laughs) essentially, just really kept the momentum going. Sega didn't really have very good console development. They were churning out games in three months. They were just throwing new programmers and new designers on it, like, just go make something, just go make something, with very little oversight. Some very legendary people come out of those early days. Yuji Naka gets his start doing this. Yu Suzuki, the great arcade developer, actually the first thing he does before he goes to the arcade stuff, is a console game for the early Sega systems. Rieko Kodama, the artist, comes out of this, so some great Sega personalities come out of this. But their game development is kind of a mess at the very beginning, and they don't have much compelling in the way of games. Nintendo has a couple of hit arcade games of their own, and then they really get Namco in, and so they're, they're off and running. They've got over 2 million by the end of 1984. It's just up, up, up for them at that point. Sega decides that they need to retrench a little bit. The SG-1000 was kind of a slapdash quick thing, adapting this computer to a console format. They decide that they want to do something a little more stylish. So in 1984, they do the SG-1000 Mark II. This is basically just a cosmetic change. It's the same internal hardware, but it has a new case that looks a little cooler. It has controllers that are a little more Famicom-like, so they're a little more user-friendly. But it's, it's the same system. It's a cosmetic change only. 
They also come up with a format called Sega Card, which is putting games on a teeny tiny little card instead of on a cartridge. They came up with that idea because they decided that kids would probably want to carry their games over to their friends' houses, and so they would want something that would be easy to carry, and that they could just kind of whip out and be all cool, like, here's my game, whoo, never leave home without it, (laughs) like some credit card commercial. That format doesn't last long because basically part of the way they got it so small is by putting less memory in it. Eventually, games got to the point where you needed more memory than you could fit on a card. Now, of course, you could fit every single Sega game and every single Nintendo game and still have gigabytes to spare on a USB that's literally the size of your thumbnail. <laughs> but back then, obviously, that was not a thing. So they, they had this Sega card format that they came up with at this time as well. Mark II doesn't do any better than the Mark I. I don't know exactly what the sales figures are, but I mean, it's still getting crushed. In 1985, they decide to make a slightly more substantial change to it. I don't know why they're doing these yearly updates. I think I talked about this before. I think it probably has a little bit to do with their DNA as an arcade company. When you're making arcade hardware, if you have a base hardware and you decide, wouldn't it be great if I could also do this, you slap another chip in there. You slap some more memory in there, you know, and you have a new system. That's probably the mentality that drove some of this yearly update, constantly tweaking. And of course, as we get into the 16-bit era, way too many peripherals mentality of Sega is this arcade route. So in uh, 1985, they decide to change the chip, the graphics chip. It's still a Z80-based system, but they decide to do a new graphics chip. And that they just call the Mark III from SG-1000 Mark III, but they kind of drop the SG-1000 and just basically call it the Mark III at this point. It's mostly the same system, but the graphics chip is a little better. I think it may have a little more RAM in it. Uh, At this point, it's a clearly superior system to the Famicom in terms of capability, but they're they're way too far behind the 8-ball. They do sell probably over a million of them. One of these Business Japan articles say that the Mark III sold a million units in its first year. By 1985, the Famicom has been out a while. A lot of people that want it already have it. So there's enough kind of excitement for a new system two years later that that spurs a little bit more sales than Sega's been able to get. But after that first year, it falls off a cliff. If it sells a million in that first year, it's pretty clear that it only sells another hundred or thousand or so after that first year. Nintendo, meanwhile, finds new life because of Dragon Quest. We won't go into detail on that. We talk about Dragon Quest in our Enix episode, our Birth of RPGs episode. But 1986 is when Dragon Quest hits. This is the second peak year of Famicom. There's kind of 83 when it launches is a big year. And then 86 is kind of where the Famicom market peaks. And a big part of that is Dragon Quest. Once you have Dragon Quest and the whole JRPG boom going on NES, any chance that Sega had is basically dead at that point. Sega, of course, releases Fantasy Star, which in some ways is a superior game. Bigger, bolder sprites, animated sprites, multi-world, sprawling, epic sci-fi tale. Very good game. That comes out a year later. But by then, uh, with Dragon Quest, with the Shoshinkai, with the distribution stranglehold, with the price, with everything... Nintendo is just too entrenched in the Japanese market to be able to overcome. So at that point, the issue is settled in Japan and remains settled all the way until the PlayStation happens. Obviously, for Sega to succeed in any real way, 
that leaves trying to compete with Nintendo in other markets. In Europe, but in especially the most lucrative of all the markets, the United States. So now we have Sega and Nintendo invading the United States. Exactly. And that is where we will pick up this story in part two of our massive look back at this epic Sega Nintendo war. In Japan, in the part we've already talked about, there's really not much warfare. It's more about setting up who these companies are, what their goals were, where they were coming from, and how they entered the market. Now, as we get into their conflict in America and to a lesser extent Europe, we'll get into the meat of this massive clash of video gaming titans. Sounds good. And we will enjoy part two next time on They Create Worlds. Random aside note, but apparently Victor says that this is his 11-year-old favorite podcast. Oh, well, that's wonderful. That's awesome. So hi, Victor's 11-year-old. Hi. Hello. (laughs) So big shout out there. Big shout out to Victor and his 11-year-old. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. You can email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 